invite you to open your Bible tonight to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. Not quite as familiar a Christmas story as Luke chapter 2, but um, you do know the, uh, the story that we'll be looking at tonight. We're looking at chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 12, responding to the king. Verses 1 through 12, responding to the king. Matthew chapter 2, let's give our attention to God's word. Let's read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's bow and ask the Lord's blessing. Well, God in heaven, tonight again, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word. We thank you, O Lord, for the love of God, which brought the Son to earth to us. I pray that we would see him tonight with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we come to a story that's been a staple of the uh, Christmas tradition and Sunday school pageants. Uh, you may be, I'm sure, uh, heard the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Uh, one of those uh, hymns that is wrong on just about every single account. Because um, everything about the, the title, at least, is, is wrong, except that these uh, men are from the Orient. A tra- tradition uh, tells us there are three of them, which we, uh, we don't know that for sure at all. There are three gifts, or three sorts of gifts. It could have been uh, many more. It could have been two. All we know is that it's plural. Uh, we, though, have been given their names even in tradition, Gaspar and Melchior and Balthazar. Maybe you've uh, got a Christmas card and, and uh, confidently have named these three men. Uh, most, uh, most likely they were riding on a camel and uh, gathered with the shepherds uh, there in the little inn or the, the little cave and, uh, or the, the manger, I mean, and, and the oxen are there and the shepherds are there and it's all just one beautiful hallmark scene and it's not... Uh, it's, it's not how it happened. Uh, they're, not, they're not kings, most likely, not kings at all. They're, they're magi, priests, scholars of the day, uh, astrologers. Um, and uh, they're most, almost certainly not there the night of Christ's birth. 
Uh, we're told that they went to the house, and that's where they saw Mary and the child. And so we don't know uh, how long afterward it might be. Herod, uh, when he goes about to kill this child, uh, gives himself a two-year gap and kills all the boys in Bethlehem under two after he has ascertained when they first saw the star. So, so there's many things um, that uh, we know that aren't true, but uh, we can easily miss the, the central thing that Matthew does want us to know. Uh, Matthew's the only gospel uh, writer to include this in his account. And the question that raises is, why? Uh, what's Matthew's purpose? What's he trying to do in his gospel? Well, well, you know that Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew remembered the former tax collector, uh, the man who had been sitting in his booth one day, and uh, uh, Jesus came walking by and uh, said, I want you to follow me. And Matthew's life had never been uh, the same. Matthew includes uh, far more references to Old Testament Scripture than any of the other gospel writers. He is, as we said this morning, um, striving to prove to his Jewish audience that uh, what the Old Testament prophets had foretold has all been fulfilled in Jesus. He is the Messiah. But, but he's not simply trying to prove Jesus is the Messiah. He's trying to correct Jewish misconceptions concerning the Messiah. One of the greatest reasons the Jews were not able or did not come to faith in Christ is because he didn't look like the Messiah they were expecting. They were waiting for someone to come and get rid of Rome. Someone, a son of David, who would come with military might and rescue Israel from foreign rule. And this Messiah came not with military might, came with incredible humility, but came to rescue sinners from divine condemnation. It's simply um, the Messiah that Matthew has to tell about doesn't look like the one they were expecting. So Matthew has these two goals, prove that Jesus is actually the Messiah promised, and then correct the misconceptions regarding him. And, and so Matthew, as he begins his story about Jesus, his gospel account, highlights the gospel truth about Jesus. And he highlights that by showing that the first worshipers who come and bow down before this Jewish king are Gentile astrologers. They're, they're, they're pagans. And so uh, he begins, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews. And so if you're a Jewish reader, you immediately have a problem. Uh, the wrong people are coming to the party. These are not just pagans, these are in a sense the the head of the pagan religion to the east. These are astrologers, diviners, uh, men who are spiritually thoroughly unfit, unclean. They do not belong in the presence of the Jewish Messiah. These are the people you see the Messiah, when he came, would um, destroy with the breath of his mouth. These are the people that would, would be um, expelled from the land. These are the Canaanites that would be uh, conquered in the judgment and the wrath of God. But here are these men, these wise men, uh, who are um, known for their pagan wisdom, these pagan men, and they are coming looking for Jesus. But you see, it's precisely because uh, the, the, the nature of these men that makes them such an important part of the story. It's, 
It's, it's exactly because these are men who are truly uh, in bondage to darkness. The, the uh, scripture is very clear that, that those who are practice the art of astrology and diviners, those who are trying through magic arts to foretell the future, that's part of the demonic realm. And it is, it is unclean. It is idolatry. Scripture is very clear about that. But you see, when Matthew uh, t- tells us about these pagan uh, idolatrous men coming, you see, he wants us to see the grand cosmic saving purposes of God being worked out. This is the nations coming to, into Israel's dawn as we read in Isaiah chapter 60. These magi are walking proof that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And and since uh, 99.9% of you here this evening are Gentiles, uh, this is very good news. We're not here tonight just to celebrate a Jewish Messiah who came to uh, make uh, Israel great. Praise God. We're celebrating a Jesus who came looking for idolaters like us. And so they come to Jerusalem. So the irony of this, here's these uh, pagan astrologers, and they go to Jerusalem very excited. They've seen a star, and they ask, where is the one who's been born of the king of the Jews? Where is he? Now they're asking this of, of, of a nation who's been under a foreign occupation for as long as anyone can remember. They haven't had a king since uh, the, right before the Babylonian captivity. And he was a puppet king. Israel hasn't had a king for hundreds and hundreds of years, and and so yet yet these men come with great expectancy and faith. Where is he? We saw a star. Now, scholars ask the question, how in the world do these guys know about a Jewish Messiah? They're most likely from Babylon. Um, Where did they they get this, this information? Why are they looking for a Jewish Messiah? Well, we don't know for sure. It's one of the mysteries of Scripture, but uh, it's, it's, it's possible, if not even likely. These are, this is a remnant of Daniel being in Babylon who was made the head of the Magi. He was made the head of the wise men in Babylon, and it's very possible he opened up the Jewish Scriptures and taught them the wisdom that comes from God. There is a prophecy in Numbers chapter 24. It's interesting. It's a prophecy also given by a Gentile, an Edomite, Balaam, as he's trying to curse the people of God, and yet he can't help but bless them because that's uh, what they're, they're, they're God's people. And so he, he, uh, he gives this prophecy, Balaam does, in Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it's, it's possible that these magi had heard this prophecy and they've seen this star and they run to Jerusalem. It's a, it's a, it's a fair piece, it's a long ways away, but they're uh, on a mission to find this king and worship him. So they come to Jerusalem. Imagine their shock when no one knows what they're talking about. I mean, if a king has been born in in Israel, certainly the the capital city, Jerusalem, is going to be all abuzz with the news. Kings are a big deal. The birth of a king for Israel would would be in all the newspapers. And so they come and they say, where is he? Where's who? Well, the king, the, the, the one who was born the king of the Jews. And wicked old Herod says, who? The king of the Jews? 
Well, Herod's the king of the Jews. Uh, this would be like someone uh, coming to you and saying, you know, do you know where, oh, just pick a name, to, uh, Frank, Frank uh, Peters. Uh, nobody hears Frank Peters, right? Do you know where Frank Peters is? I'm looking for my husband. And, and if you were Mrs. Peters, that would be concerning. Uh, that's Herod's response. The king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. And so we see here these, uh, these three responses to the news, or three responses to the king. Herod's response is a hatred and opposition. When, when Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Uh, troubled is a very light way of saying it. Uh, the true passion that Herod has about this will be seen in uh, the murderous act he commits when he orders all the children in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, the, the male children, to be killed. Uh, Herod is an old man at this time. He's, he's a wicked despot. Uh, he knew that he was despised by his people. It, it, it said that uh, as Herod neared his death, uh, as he got older, he um, commanded that several noble and, and, and highly admired men be arrested and held in captivity and then executed on the day he died so that somebody would be mourning uh, the day that Herod died because he was afraid that there would be parades and celebrations. One commentator wrote that Jerusalem had good reason to be troubled whenever Herod was troubled because Herod's troubles usually meant the people's, and that's exactly how it went. He's just a wicked, vile man. He'd killed three of his own sons in his paranoia. He'd killed his favorite wife. He'd killed his least favorite mother-in-law. Caesar Augustus had said uh, only partly in jest, it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. A wicked man. A cruel, cruel, gross, wicked man. And yet what Herod is, is he's just simply the spirit of man. The spirit of human rebellion. In, in, its, in its futile attempt to overthrow God and establish our own autonomy. This is the spirit of the Antichrist in Herod. He's acting like Pharaoh of old. But it's what the spirit of rebellion looks like in, in human, uh, the human race. Uh, he sees the implications. If there's a king, that's a threat to his own sovereignty. You see, there's, it's exactly how many people in the world today feel about Jesus. It's not simply that they don't believe in Jesus, but that they are fiercely opposed to Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus, and they hate him. Uh, Thomas Nagel, a professor of philosophy at the New York University um, until just last year, he uh, wrote an article uh, speaking about the fear that people have uh, concerning religion. And he says this, quote, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. Uh, so Nagel says there's a cosmic authority problem. Well said. Ever since Adam and Eve, we've had a cosmic authority problem. We don't want there to be a universe where uh, God actually is God and exercises the rights of God. And so much of the animosity that you're seeing displayed in our culture, increasingly, it's exactly the same spirit and the same fear that drove 
King Herod. It's one way people respond to the Christmas story. They hate it and oppose it. More shocking is the complacency of the Jewish religious leaders. So Herod assembles all the chief priests together, and he asks them, where, where is the, the Messiah, the Christ? Where is he to be born? And they confidently answer, well, in Bethlehem of Judea. And they quote the prophecy from Micah uh, 5, verses 2 through 5. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's a beautiful prophecy uh, of Micah. And um, they, they uh, give this prophecy, they give the answer, and then they go back to the Reader's Digest or whatever they're doing. There's no, there's no curiosity Bethlehem is five miles from Jerusalem. It's a, it's a nice afternoon stroll. It would have been, been the easiest thing in the world for them to say, did, did you say Messiah? You saw a star? What, what, tell us about that. What do you know? Would you mind if we come along? You see, they, they should have been at the head of the pack, these Jewish religious leaders. And yet we, we hear absolutely nothing. There, there seems to be no desire to look into these things at all. No curiosity. No zeal. No concern. That, that, that no, no expectation. Has it finally happened? What's, what in the world's going on? Well, I think it's, it's just spiritual pride. Uh, you can put yourself in the mindset of these Jewish religious leaders. Uh, to them, um, it's ludicrous on the face of it to think that God would, would uh, tell Gentile dogs about the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, that they would be sort of the first ones to know. It, it, was, it was laughable on the face of it. You see, for the Jews, there were God's people and then everybody else, Gentiles, lost, cursed, damned, um, God hates them, and so it doesn't even, it doesn't even register this. Is, it's possible that what they're saying could have any significance or truth to it. Bruner, a commentator, says this, The despised pagan astrologers who have nothing but their natural idols are led to Israel who has the written word of God, and when this word is heard by both the Israelites and the Magi, it's the pagans who eagerly follow it, while the leadership of the people of God sit complacently at home. The despised believed the word, the devout ignored it. That is the great tragedy of Christ coming to his own and his own receiving him not. They had the word, they had the law, they had the prophets. But when the Messiah came, they rejected him because they didn't, they didn't listen to the word. They ignored the word. Uh, they, they, they claim to know God. They have a form of godliness, but there's no power in it. They don't love God. They're not longing for his salvation. What a, what a difference between uh, these leaders and godly old Anna and Simeon at the temple when now mine eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Lord, let thy servant depart in peace. And they rejoice at what has come to pass. But these religious leaders are too busy with their religious life. Um, their, their animosity and rebellion is just as real as Herod, Herod's, but they manage to, to hide it under the robes of their external religion. You know, there are two ways, as, as Keller, Tim Keller points out, well, there, there's two ways to avoid God. One is to uh, overtly reject him. The other is to, um, to hide yourself in external religion. Be a good moral person. 
You don't need saving. You don't need a Jesus. You, you've got this all by yourself. Two ways to avoid Jesus. And there are many, of course, in the world today, exactly like these religious leaders, uh, good people, moral people, religious people, maybe people who know their Bible, they know the things of God. But there's, there's, no, there's no hunger for God. There's no, there's no zeal for his salvation, no, no uh, begging for God to glorify his name. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. None of, none of that. You see, these, these men, they have the whole Bible, and yet they're blind to their deep, profound need of a Savior. Remember what Jesus said to the, the Samaritan woman at the well? If, he says, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. If you knew the gift of God, everlasting life, freely given for sinners, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew the one who was saying to you, talking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, that's, that's just the truth. If, if you know the need of your soul and you know the nature of Jesus Christ, you will, like blind Bartimaeus, stand up and yell out and holler out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And if Jesus is walking by and, and you don't say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, you don't know the reality of your need and you don't know the nature of the Savior. There are many people who sit in church who, who don't know those things. But there are some who give, are given genuine faith and sight and, and you know them by their worship. And that's what we see finally in the three wise men or the, the wise men, however many there might be. <clears throat> After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star they had seen when it rose went on before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced uh, exceedingly with great joy. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't uh, take the time to pull this all apart. I don't know if there's any other place in the Bible that piles up uh, words for joy like we have in the Greek here. So they rejoice, that's the verb, and then there's, then there's an there's a adjective, some modifying, they rejoice uh, greatly, uh, no, they rejoice with joy, mega, greatly, extremely. So they, they didn't just rejoice, they rejoice with joy. That's a, that's a Hebrew way of emphasizing, right? That, that it's, it's, it's a lot of joy. But that's not even enough for Matthew. They rejoiced with joy, with great joy, exceedingly, extremely, over the top. You can imagine these men, when they, when they see the star, um, they're delirious with joy. They're overcome with joy. They're dancing in the road. They're running. Uh, they're madmen. They're not, oh, you know, like tourists, right? Just sort of noticing things. Oh, look at that. Isn't that, and, and snap a picture or, or, or uh, take a note. They're worshipers. And they, they, when they saw the star, the star that they had seen at first and, and the star they, they realize is leading them to the place, like a pillar of fire in the Old Testament, they rejoice, and then going to the house, they open the door, and there's Mary and the child, and they fall down and worship him. Can you imagine what's going through Mary's mind? As these strange-looking fellows from a long way away 
enter and fall down and start worshiping your little, your little toddler. And bringing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, extremely precious gifts, gifts that would belong to a king, gold, and belong to a priest, frankincense, and then myrrh, which is used as a spice to bury the dead, a strange thing. Mary pondered that maybe in her heart. But you see, their response is pure worship. And one of the things that we see in the Christmas story is that sort of response over and over. The angels rejoicing as they sing. The shepherds rejoicing when they see the child and they go on their way. And the magi rejoicing exceedingly with great joy when they're led finally to the Messiah. I wonder if you've ever been rebuked, unknowingly maybe, but rebuked by a new Christian. Have you ever had the experience of seeing someone come to faith and then being shocked about how happy they are about it? And you've been a Christian for all these years and they're just, they seem really happy. I remember, for those of you who remember Brent Wilson uh, when he came to faith, I remember uh, going through the confessions of Christ with, with Brent and, and, um, reading the part about justification and how all of our sin is put on Christ and his righteousness is freely given to us with nothing to be done. And, and Brent sat there literally, his jaw dropped, his eyes just filled with tears. And he just kept saying, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. And I'm thinking to myself, here's this 21, 22-year-old with no church background, rejoicing in this gospel, and, and I'm the preacher. Shouldn't I have that joy? Shouldn't you? We get used to it. One of the great things about just traveling on short-term missions is you meet other Christians. If you've been to Haiti and you've seen Christians who have nothing except joy, in their poverty, there's just joy as they eagerly wait for the appearing of their Lord Jesus Christ. It's throughout the scripture. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a hidden treasure in a field. And he went and with joy sold everything that he had and bought the field. With joy, he's selling things. He sets up a, right, a, a little swap meet right there in his front yard. And he's selling things. And, and the neighbors are coming by and they're buying it. And, and, and he's smiling. He's laughing. He's selling everything he has. Why? Because he'd found a hidden treasure. And with joy, he sold everything to buy it. Our challenge, we're, we're challenged here tonight. We're the Christians. We're the, we're the church people. Let me just ask you, is joy still a part of your Christian experience? And not just bubbly, laughing, you know, chipper joy, but the deep the deep anchor of joy that comes in the gospel, the, the deep confidence that God has loved you, and you are loved still, and he'll never let you go, and the comfort that no matter what's happening in your life today, God knows, and God cares, and he's ordaining things, and you're not alone, and no matter what happens in this crazy world, no matter what leaders and rulers do, God has ordained it all. God has it all in his hand. Do you have that joy, the joy that... that um, makes you smile and sing even in difficult times or in a, in a frightening world, a joy that uh, gives you peace so you can sleep at night, a joy that um, makes you love in a fresh 
real way? Do you have that joy? You see, because if we don't have that joy, then we're missing something about the Christmas story. Let's let the, 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 the pagan wise men rebuke us and remind us of what it actually means that the Son has been born, that a Savior has come for us. The Gentiles, the pagans, but now the children of God in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to encourage you or challenge you even. Don't give yourself rest um, until you've rediscovered that joy. Don't let your Christianity just be um, something you believe on a Sunday and then put on the shelf and get on with your life. Or don't, don't let it be a Christianity that allows you to live in constant darkness and despair or selfishness, uh, impatience or lack of peace. A Savior has been born. A King has come for you. It changes everything. Pray that God would give you the grace to believe it in a way that makes you and me rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that he came for sinners like us. Father, forgive us for becoming complacent in our faith. Forgive us, Lord, for, for believing these things and yet not allowing them to really become the north star of our existence the truth that directs us and, and comforts us and encourages us and strengthens us and makes us hungry for holiness and, and eager to see Christ and to be useful to him in this world. Oh, Father, I pray that this story, this beautiful gospel story, would become woven into the fabric of our life so that we can't help but respond with joy, with gladness, with singing until Jesus Christ returns as he promised he would. And I thank you, Lord, that um, we have every reason to celebrate for the gospel is true. A Savior has been born for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a hymn about joy. <clears throat> All my heart this night rejoices. Uh, beautiful words, wonderful hymn. Let's stand and give thanks and praise to God.